Consumer prices, as economists like to say, are sticky. In particular, core consumer prices. In particular, particular, the core consumer prices that Federal Reserve officials try to use in which to judge the health and strength of the economy. PCE deflator numbers we got yesterday were once again stuck around 0.4% month over month, which suggests that as of now, core consumer prices show no signs of going down. Nor should we expect them to go down until the Eurodollar system actually breaks the back of inflation. Not rate hikes, but the monetary system. Deflationary money becomes enough of a deflationary economy that consumer prices, core consumer prices in particular, suddenly shift. If history is any guide, and history usually is a useful guide, we go back to say 2008. What you see then is a lot familiar, very familiar to what we see today. Core consumer prices as represented by the core PCE deflator, again, the Fed's favorite indicator, they were sticky back then too. You saw a steady increase in core consumer prices, about 0.2% per month throughout the middle 2000s, throughout 2007, throughout most of 2008, really up until August and September, and then October, suddenly core consumer prices fell off. The euro dollar system broke the back of inflation or what everybody thought was inflation back then. It wasn't rate hikes. It wasn't rate cuts. It wasn't the Federal Reserve at all. In fact, when you look at consumer prices, either the core rate or the headline rate, there is no correlation with the Federal Reserve's programs. Certainly not rate hikes, certainly not rate cuts. It's the Eurodollar system. What we learned from the 2008 experiences that if the Eurodollar wants inflation to happen, it's going to make inflation to happen. If the Eurodollar system gets into a deflationary situation, that's when we need to look for consumer prices, whatever they've been doing beforehand, to suddenly shift and change. If we're if we want to know what's going on ahead of us, not, not looking backwards at what consumer prices have already done, we want to look ahead at what consumer prices and the real economy is going to do, we need to pay attention to that Eurodollar system and whether or not it's going to break the back of the economy and then lead to consumer prices falling, maybe even outright deflation. So we're going to focus today on what the biggest factor is in the Eurodollar system's fragility, weakness, and what's likely to cause the, the breakage, or the breakdown in the Eurodollar system that leads to eventually breaking the back of sticky consumer price. I won't say it, but consumer price increases. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're interested, talking about all this Eurodollar stuff, collateral, which, spoiler alert, that's what we're going to get into today. Got all the information available for you. Memberships, exclusive video content, weekly recaps, Q&A, presentations, as well as classroom videos, and the basics about all of these things. Memberships at Eurodollar University. Research subscriptions are available. One at Eurodollar University too, the daily deep dive analysis where we dive deep into these topics, as well as a daily briefing I contribute over at marketsinsiderpro.com. Check those out if you're interested. All the information on all of it, membership and research subscriptions, eurodollar.university. 
So we look at what's going on in the banking system here. Forget about the PC deflator. Again, that's, that's looking backwards. That's looking at what already happened. We want to know what's coming. What should we expect about consumer prices moving forward? Markets have told us all along that we're going to see the euro dollar system, the monetary system, the real monetary system become weak to the point that eventually something is going to break. And thus far, the something that's going to break has looked a lot like bank cri the bank crisis. Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, Signature, Credit Suisse. Let's not forget about Credit Suisse because we're going to come back to the global part of this in a little bit. But essentially, we have the Euro all the symptoms of a euro-dollar monetary system that, is that are breaking down. But what does that actually mean? I talk about this all the time, deflationary money, the interruption in the circulation of flow. That's not rate hikes. The rate hikes at most have rejiggered the system a little bit, where money has flowed, deposits have flowed out from especially US regional banks and other banks around the rest of the world to, in many cases, non-banks like money market funds. But that's not interesting. That's not the whole story. That's not even half of the story. Because if we think about through history, money market funds have been nothing more than an engine of recirculation of monetary resources throughout the global economy, throughout the global monetary system, therefore the global economy. We saw this in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Paul Volcker's Fed, the entire myth of the Fed, was predicated on the idea that the Fed was going to make bank reserves expensive by constricting their level. Sound familiar? And what did banks do? They responded by um, incentivizing customer deposits to go to money market funds. They were actively courting money market funds and actively, and actively incentivizing depositors to go there so that they wouldn't have to pay higher federal funds costs because the higher the level of deposits, regulations required higher levels of reserves, which meant either cash in a vault or the Fed's bank reserves. So banks said, if the Fed's going to make bank reserves expensive, then we won't create deposits. We'll move those deposits to a money market fund, but then we don't just lose those deposits like banks are doing now, we borrow those, borrow those funds back from the money market funds in wholesale markets, so long as we have the collateral to do so. So what I'm saying is back in the 1970s and 80s, the real inflation of the last part of the great inflation, banks actively used money market funds to circumvent the Fed's reserve requirement plans. And they did so knowing that they could borrow the funds back as the deposits shifted away from them. Why isn't that happening now, because de deposit flight really began in uh, uh, the early part of 2022. Some of it shifted to money market funds. Some of it shifted to banks who are more willing and better prepared to pay higher rates. But either way, we have this open question about deflationary money. What is stopping the circulation of money? If deposits are, f are flowing to money market funds, if deposits are flowing to larger banks, why aren't they being relent back to the, to the uh, banks that are losing these deposits, keeping them at least afloat? The answer has always been repo and these wholesale markets. But repo isn't a single marketplace either. None of these things are. There's, we're, we're, we're led to believe that money is very simple and easy, that there's one monetary system, which the Federal Reserve sits right in the middle of it and controls everything easy with the, the levers of its all, the, all the tools in its toolkits. When that's not the case. Repo, money markets, all of these things are and can be highly fragmented. So working backward here, the idea is that deposits have left these troubled institutions, or they become troubled because deposits left, and then they haven't been able to refund their, their liabilities in these wholesale markets. 
Can we find evidence for all of these parts of the theory, or at least the major parts of our theory here? Deposits migrate, they go to money market funds, therefore they become available in repo, and then something happens to block banks from being able to recirculate or reborrow those funds back in wholesale. From the first part, the deposit migration, we know that's happened because we've got the statistics on that, the H8 data, as well as individual bank numbers. How about the, how about the, we know the, the funds have gone into money market funds because we've got statistics on money market funds, but how about making them reavailable in repo? And we know money market funds have preferred to just stick funds in the reverse repo at the Federal Reserve, which is basically the same thing. And it's basically money market funds already telling us they want only safety. But we do see a lot more funds have become available in particular this year in things like uh, tri-party repo. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York keeps statistics. In fact, this is the calculations that go into SOFR on things like tri-party repo or what they call broad general collateral repo. And if we look at those statistics, specifically the volume data, what we see is that volume was relatively stable and constant with a few minor ups and downs along the way throughout 2022 as the deposit migration really started to, to, to kick in. But then this year, right from the beginning, long before we even got to Silicon Valley Bank, suddenly repo volumes, at least what we can see here of broad general collateral repo, this is really mostly tri-party, suddenly beginning this year, there's more funds available in the repo market. So that's evidence for us that this part of the theory is happening. It was, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, it's about 380 billion volume at the, at the end of last year. Then it ticked up to 480 billion, so a huge increase in January as things really started to go on. Remember January, what happened to the yield curve? Suddenly that started to really get inverted, not just here, but around the rest of the world, Germany in particular. So suddenly we've got an indication that suddenly more funds are available in repo. Then there was a little bit of cooling off period in February. So the volume dropped back to around 467 billion around the time Silicon Valley Bank failed. And then it just started to surge again. And so the, by the time we get to, to early May, as the deposit flight got really serious, it was up around 580 billion. And as of yesterday, which was Friday, uh, May 26th, the FRBNY says it was over 600 billion. So just this year up until May or up until recently, so first first five months of the year, we went from 380 to 600 billion. So yeah, funds have become available in repo, in particular tri-party repo, which suggests that there's probably more funds available in the other parts of the repo system that we can't see. So we've established that funds have migrated, deposits migrated from certain banks. They went largely to money market funds and other larger banks, and then were made available in repo which means that we have to infer some of these banks like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and maybe some others were not able to, to re-lend or not able to re-borrow those funds in wholesale, even though they're available. Why not? This is where we zero in on collateral. In order to really get some evidence for the collateral shortage scarcity runs that we've been talking about on this channel all along, we got to look at a different part of the repo market. This is called GCF repo. I know it gets kind of confusing, but GCF repo is really about uh, dealers who operate in the real repo market. 
And it's, uh, I think this is where you see a lot of the collateral problems begin to develop because the way GCF repo works, first of all, it's on a blind basis, which means anonymous. You don't really know who you're transacting with. It's basically on an electronic platform that's put out, that's put together by DTCs, DTCC's FICC Government Securities Division, which means that they act as sort of a central clearing party. It's in connection with tri-party repo and none of that really matters, but essentially, if you're a dealer and you want to fund whatever it is you're doing, you get into GCF repo, which means you're not actually pledging specific collateral. That's what the GC part means, general collateral. You use a generic QCIP. So for example, if you want to use basically some kind of treasury collateral, you use a generic treasury QCIP, you go into the repo market, um, you borrow funds, you lend funds, you, you borrow collateral, you lend collateral, whatever the case may be, you do a bunch of stuff. And, DTCC's FICC platform nets the stuff out during the day. And then at the end of the day, they say, you owe us collateral or you owe us cash and we'll settle, we'll settle it up some way or another. That's when you start to actually pick out which collateral you need. So GCF is highly collateral sensitive. And what we see in GCF repo, according to DC, DTCC's figures, is exactly what, was, what we've been talking about with, for example, the huge spikes in treasury bill prices, the big drops in treasury bill yields, which tells us collateral shortage. It's even more detailed than that. Um, let's talk about, okay, March of 2023. Let's start there because I think it's a good place to start. What you see, of course, we talked about the huge surge in, in T-bill prices, in particular four-week T-bill. So we're gonna use that as our proxy for shortage of collateral. We're going to look at DTCC's GCF volume as sort of a proxy for what might be going on in other parts of the repo system, as well as GCF repo. And what you see is it's almost an exact match. I mean, almost exact match. I mean, we live in a dynamic, uh, complex system as it is. We're, we're talking about a complex repo market. And we can't expect it to be exact, but this is, this is pretty damn exact. Um, T-bill prices really started to, to skyrocket around March 13th. That was the, that was after Silicon Valley Bank. So from March 13th to March 29th, T-bill prices went through the roof. At the same time, March 13th to March 28th, we saw NBS volume in GCF repo go nuts, which suggested that demand for repo was, was high. Demand for repo was really high in U.S. Treasuries, but dealers for some reason were not offering U.S. treasuries as collateral, to be available as collateral in this part of the repo market. Instead, repo participants that were in massive demand for repo funding had to put up NBS collateral, not U.S. treasuries. T-bill prices skyrocket and the repo, those who are in the repo market trying to, to borrow cash are forced to use NBS. We see UST repo volumes actually decline which only, only highlights the matter here. And then it happened again. Remember, there was another surge in T-bill prices, another bunch of scramble for glad. We had the 0% zero, uh, 0 yields at auctions, all that stuff. We talked about this as it was happening. You can see it here again. Early April, around April 4th or 5th, T-bill prices start to go up again. T-bill yields go down. That lasted till around April 21st. And again, we see this weird thing where UST volume, so... GCF repo volumes using UST collateral, that stays down, goes down more. 
and MBS repo volume goes up. So demand for collateral, demand for repo that's only being met by MBS securities. Huge shortfall in UST collateral. Why? It's, that's, that's the question we're going to get into. Again, we'll get into that later. It suggests that dealers are hoarding T-bills and U.S. Treasury collateral. That's at the very least. And this is not the only time it's happened. We go back in the GCF volume numbers. We go back in the T-bill prices. And again, they're near exactly synchronized. I'll talk um, briefly September. Remember September? That wasn't about gilts. That wasn't even about Europe. That was a collateral problem, as I said at the time and afterwards. So again, we see T-bill prices start to go up. T-bill rates go down September 15th to around October 12th. This time we do see UST repo volume go up as well as MBS repo volume when September 19th to around October 11th. Again, almost an exact match. And then it happened yet again in December into January. So from mid-December, mid to late December, T-bill prices start to get really high again, and we see another spike up in repo volume. What that tells us is that in September as well as December into January, so September, October, and again in January, uh, December, January, demand for repo funding goes up, which is not a good sign. At the same time, demand for obviously collateral goes up, but dealers and the monetary system and the collateral system were able to meet that demand. At higher prices, it wasn't easy, but at least dealers were willing to supply collateral at, at, the, at the higher prices, which is supposed to happen. The difference in March is the dealers were not willing, for whatever reason, they were not willing to supply U.S. Treasury collateral. That was the big thing, and that's why you saw T-bill prices go way up and T-bill yields go way down. It wasn't the debt ceiling. It was a collateral shortage. So big picture, deflationary money becomes deflationary economy, and that's the moment in which consumer prices, the back of, the back of inflation gets broken. And what we see here is a series, and it actually goes back further into March, and then of course, June into July of 2022, we see this increasing and escalating series of collateral problems that rise and rise and rise, is it done with? Is it over with? No, it's the typical crisis pattern where you have something happens, it makes, it causes a little bit of a trouble, and then everything seems quiet for a while. Then something else happens, and it makes even more trouble, and then it goes quiet for a while. Then another thing happens, and it creates even more trouble, and it continues to escalate, but not in a straight line, not all at once. Back and forth, back and forth, until finally, it goes too far. And the goes too far is exactly what the markets are telling us. Less so recently, but that's back and forth too. The markets are still sure about deflationary money, that it's going to happen at some point, and maybe it's the next surge in demand for treasury collateral, the next, next wave of deposit outflows and migration in which the monetary system is not able to, to reconnect those things and recirculate funds because of this collateral problem that remains as bad and as serious, even if it's not as acute right now as it was just a few weeks ago. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, huge, huge thank you, Eurodollar University research subscribers, Marcus Insider Pro research subscribers, and of course, all our Eurodollar University members, my sincere thank you. Until next time, take care.